Would you pray with me? Lord, a question was asked earlier in our song, you know, are you thirsty? Are you empty? Are you tired and are you broken? And uh, the answer to that is yes, we are. Uh, Lord, we come here with nothing to contribute, really except our need. And so we pray, Lord, that you would meet us, that you indeed would uh, cause living waters to flow, that by your spirit you would attend this word, um, that it would be received in our hearts, and Lord, that it would thrive and grow to your glory and to the good of our neighbors. Uh, Lord, would you do that work through the preaching of this word? We thank you, Holy Spirit, that your presence is assured, that Jesus, your care goes undiminished, that Father, you are tender toward us in our need. Would you meet it here this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, around the same time and in, in nearly the same place, the, the King James Bible translation and Shakespeare's King Lear were being written. The author Adam Nicholson says that, in fact, that was no coincidence because the people translating the Bible at that time and the person composing King Lear all had kings and kingdoms on their mind. In fact, he calls these two works mirror twins of one another. And he explains that King Lear pursues the implications of a singular and disastrous decision to divide a kingdom, while the King James Bible embraces the full breadth of absorbed and inherited wisdom to unite one. Lear, he says, contemplates more fearlessly than any text had ever done or ever has done the falling away of all meaning. The King James Bible enshrines what it understands as the guarantee of all meaning. Everything in Lear falls apart. Everything in the King James Bible comes together. One is a nightmare of dissolution, the other a dream of wholeness. Now, those twin tensions that were in play around 1606 in England are being contended with in the psalm we're looking at this morning. Those tensions, I think, are in play now. The tensions of what it looks like in life to find meaning or to see it fall away, to see how life comes together under the reign of the king, or to see life fracture in rebellion against the king. Now, it's clear from the start that, that the psalmist is wrestling. Uh, you can tell by the kind of tone he takes. You can tell reading, as I read through this psalm, that it reads more like something out of the book of Proverbs than a book of praise. Uh, it's more really instruction for wise living than it is invitation to worship. So I think it's worth a moment to think about what the psalmist is doing here in seeking to convey wisdom and to think about, you know, what is wisdom? Maybe beginning with what wisdom is not. Let me, let me just begin here that wisdom is not rules. And neither is wisdom results. It's really the stuff in between. I'm summarizing Tim Keller here and saying that wisdom is that quality that lies somewhere between our quest for truth and facts and the formation of our character. He defines it as, 
competence with regard to the complex realities of life, the ability to know what is the best thing to do in the majority of life situations in which the accepted moral rules do not clearly apply. And, you know, when you think about it, when you, that applies to kind of most of our life, doesn't it? You know, this is the stuff that we wrestle with the most. Questions like, should I enter this relationship or should I end it? Should I marry? Whom should I marry? How many children should I have? How should they be educated? What profession should I pursue? Should I leave my profession or change professions? How best should I care for an aging relative? What's the best course of medical treatment to take? How should I vote? What should I do with my money? It's very often the case that these just aren't straight up, you know, right or wrong moral questions. You can't look in your Bible's concordance and get a quick and easy answer, right? What do we need? We need wisdom. We need wisdom, competence in life to apply God's word to complex situations. And, and maybe the most critical step in getting wisdom is summed up in the very first word of the very first verse of this psalm, where the psalmist says, hear this, listen. Before you even, in other words, before you even think about the doing, drop everything and just listen. Don't just do something, sit there. Acquiring competence with regard to the complex realities of life, gaining the ability to know what is the best thing to do begins there. It begins with hearing, with listening to God's word. It's a, it's a fact of no small significance that the central confession of Israel and what constituted them as God's people started with not the call to strive, O Israel, or work, O Israel, or even believe, O Israel. It began with listening, hear. O Israel, the Lord our God. God's people are first and foremost those who have heard, who've listened and they've believed in that order. And notice this, the call to hear in this psalm isn't directed just to the religious people. It's directed to the entire realm of humanity, to all the peoples. Uh, he is addressing a people bound not by a common holiness, but by a common humanity. The, the particular demographic that is being zeroed in on here is everybody. And, and that fact really speaks to the importance of the message. Um, now, he comes at teaching this wisdom in this very particular and peculiar way, not by the direct means of revealing something, but, he's, but instead by the way of uh, what, he, what he says is riddle solving. So, so that as God's people are singing together, we're at the very same time solving something together. And the riddle is really summarized in verse 5. It gets sussed out for the rest of the psalm. But, but it's summed up with a question. And the question is, why should I fear in times of trouble? And I have to admit that as I got into this this week, I was like, well, that just doesn't seem like much of a riddle. I mean, actually, it seems pretty dang straightforward. It seems to me like the times of trouble are precisely the times when I should be afraid. And, and I didn't have to spend any time this week in preparing this sermon of kind of creating an illustration for you about what it means to live in a time of trouble, because guess what? We're living in times of trouble. Um, we've gone from 
a rip-roaring economy to a very shaky one, from a life of freedoms to a life of restrictions, to time with friends and family to living in isolation. We've got riots. Our politics are a mess. We're deeply divided. We are dealing with a pandemic, and we are far from being out of the woods on any of it. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Well, because of all that, right? But as he works the riddle, he begins to kind of suss out and explain what would cause him fear. Um, now, most of the comment commentators identify the particular trouble as having to do with those who trust in riches. You see this in verses 5 and 6. He's being rattled by that, by those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. But I think there's more going on than that. Certainly, the Bible's full of warnings about the temptations and the troubles and the damage we get in, that we can do and the trouble we can get into when we're entrusted with a lot of wealth. Um, but nowhere does it condemn simply having wealth. So, so I want to be really clear as he begins to identify the troubles that the problem isn't simply people with money. The problem he's getting after is the problem of misplaced faith. He's, he's wrestling with navigating a world which is completely bought into the idea that you can and you should make a life for yourself. And, you know, the, the, the quickest, easiest way to do that is with your money, right? So he's describing a, a struggle of feeling that on the one hand, his life is always being snatched away from him, while at the same time feeling like it's always kind of out of reach, and, and you get the sense in verses 5 and 6 of a guy who's just being battered from all sides. Like, he's being bilked of what, what ought to be his on the one hand while being beaten down by the boasting of those who basically say, you know, I've arrived. I've, I've gotten the good life. But he's describing really something more than a personal struggle here as he works the riddle of why should I fear in times of trouble. He, he's pressing beyond just the mere status of being afraid. He's... He's most interested in getting to the source of the fear. What, why actually am I afraid? What's underneath it? What's nourishing the fear? What's giving it life in my life? What do I feel like is threatening my life and well-being? Which, how do I, how can I excavate that question? And he begins to lay bare a question about a core conviction I think that everyone has. And that is that we all sort of feel like there is something that actually secures my life, that if only I had it, I would be happy. I would feel like I've arrived. So he's contemplating different, deeper things than, than simply wealth. And that becomes clear in the next couple of verses as the focus really shifts from, you know, our stuff to really our whole selves. So he's ex excavating. He's getting beneath the fact of our fears to its source. What makes us terrified of our lives being snatched from us or depressed when we feel like I'll never be able to secure the good life, that it's always beyond my reach? And he exposes something really curious. He begins to talk about a ransom. And I don't know about you, but when you throw the word ransom out there, I, I'm thinking of things that, you know, are really extreme unusual scenarios, things that, something that would never have anything to do with my life because I've never been a kidnapped victim and I don't know anyone who has. 
you know, my mind goes to FBI command centers and Liam Neeson movies, not, you know, my daily life. But he's still anchored to verse 1. He's still calling on all peoples to listen up to what is true of all of us. And here he begins to get into the issue of what he says is true of us, and that is that we all need a ransom. Now, what is a ransom? A ransom is basically a payment to get you out of a predicament, right? Uh, Years ago, when we had, many of you know that we lived in Boston for many years, and when we had first moved there, um, Kit and I went to a party. These were the pre-kid days. We went to the city and went to the party, drove our car down there, and I was thrilled to find in that dense city a parking spot right in front of the building where the party was. And being new to the city, I just assumed that if there was a space on the street with no meter, with no handicap sign and no hydrant, you know, we were, we were good to go. Because I had yet to learn of the intricacies of the Byzantine system of residential and guest parking permits and the intensity with which that system was enforced by the city of Boston. So we went to the party, we had a great time until we didn't. <laughs> because I came out and found that my car, of course, had been towed. So I contacted the tow yard, we took a cab to go get the car, We paid what I would say was an exorbitant fee to get my car back. Um, And I noticed on the paperwork that that fee to get the car back to its rightful owner was called a ransom. It was the payment to free my car from the predicament of being impounded. But not only that, it was me paying for my crimes. I owed the city of Boston a ransom because I had violated its laws. And in fact... You know, I had, in my own small little way, worked against the healthy functioning of the city. I had denied someone who paid probably $500 a year for their residential permit a place to park near where they lived. And because I violated that law, I was denied possession of the vehicle that afforded me the freedom to live and move and have my being in the city of Boston and do things like go to parties. And I wasn't getting that life and freedom back until all was made right with my ransom, okay? Now, that idea is at work here. The idea being that in order to secure life as it was meant to be lived, in order to get out of the miserable existence of trying to strive to make a life for myself or protect it from being stolen from me, to secure fullness of life, As it's summarized in verse 9, living on forever and never seeing the pit, a ransom must be paid. But here's the problem, and it's a double-edged sort of problem. The psalmist says, some of us live as proud people who imagine we have paid it or are paying it so that we have secured or are securing the good life, and others of us live in despair because we know that no matter what we do and no matter how hard we work, We can never afford the ransom. Some of us live as if we've redeemed ourselves with our success, and others live as those crushed because we fear that we're ruined forever because of our failures, right? That's the double-edged sword. And to that, the psalmist says, again, listen up. (laughs) No matter who you are, rich or poor, riding high or brought low, you need a ransom. We require a ransom, and here's another layer to the problem. None of us can afford it. 
the price is simply too high. So verses 7 and 8 make it clear that even if you were to give your whole life, it still wouldn't be enough. It would be too costly. Then the question emerges, and why is the price so high? Why can't I afford it? Well, in verse, in verse 7, he describes the, the transaction, how it ought to play out, specifically identifying to whom the ransom is owed. And it's not owed to ourselves. It's not owed to other people. It's not owed to a profession or to a place. He is very clear in saying it is owed to God. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Now, the implications of that statement are as profound as they are penetrating. And, and, and they can be boiled down to what is true of every human being, that our lives are not our own. They belong to the God who made us, and we have broken that relationship. We have violated his laws. We're made in God's image for God. Our lives derive from him. He upholds your life even now, and you were specially made designed to be in relationship with him. We can no more thrive and enjoy fullness of life apart from a living relationship with God any more than a plant can without the sun. We're just made that way. We're designed that way. And yet, at the heart of every human problem, to one degree or another, is we imagine we can. That we can do life on our own. That we can thrive by our own efforts and on our own terms. And, you know, if we throw a little religiosity in there, so much the better. So whether we've got a big bank account or not, we default to this problem stated at the beginning of the psalm, trusting in our own wealth, looking to ourselves to sustain our lives. And I, and I think it's because we're so easily allured by that idea that for the next few verses, the psalmist lays out, you know, with what I want to call a kind of merciless, nightmarish clarity the predicament of what it looks like to live under that delusion that somehow we might be able to live apart from the God who made us, apart from being reconciled to him, that we might, you know, in some way live on forever and never see the pit. So, you know, fasten your seatbelts here for a minute because he takes us through a fairly detailed and drawn-out contemplation of the reality of death. And he begins with the reminder that all of us die, that the wise and the foolish die alike, and whatever gains we may have realized in this life are not coming with us. It's, it's like the story of the two guys who met on a streetcar and the talk of the town and the, and the headline in the newspaper was of the, the death of the richest guy in town. And, uh, you know, one guy curious about exactly how rich this guy was says to the other guy, you know, how much did he leave? And the other guy says, well, Everything. Everything he had. But even as it is true that you can't take it with you, the psalmist says it's not like we leave this life with absolutely nothing. In verse 11, he says we, we do come into uh, possession of something. He, he identifies, talks about it in terms of real estate. He identifies our human arrogance by the lands we call by our own name. And he says, well, you're not going to have that, but you will have a grave. You will have a little plot of ground. Um, and as he begins to describe this, the imagery really becomes strange. Um, 
Uh, on the one hand, he calls the grave a, a forever home, uh, but he also says it's the place you will not remain. Um, the Hebrew language here is, is pretty revealing. It, the phrase for will not remain is, is something like you will not pass through the night. You'll stay in the darkness. That, he says, is the fate of a, of a human being in their pomp, in the pride of life fueled by self-actualization, self-assertion, self-reliance. Again, all the stuff that's life apart from the God who gave it, sustains it, and secures it. And, and the irony is, even though, you know, in the experience of that, some of us might feel like we're living the fullest human life we can, the result is degradation. The result is actually dehumanization. So that by verse 12, he says that you end up like an animal, like a beast that perishes. And I want, I want to just be remembered again that we're not just singing through this, we're solving something. We're working the riddle. Uh, and, and so far, we were, we're, we're working the problem side of the equ equation. We're contemplating the disaster that ensues from the self-centered life. We're imagining, you know, the life where you imagine that you can come up with the ransom big enough to set yourself free. And we've been shown where that takes you, to death, to degradation, to dehumanization. And the psalmist wants us to understand something that's really critical, and that is that physical death is not the end of the story. There, there is, in fact, a place you end up that is in a, a very real sense, a continuation of your path in life. We're contending with the idea that this life's trajectory lands you somewhere in the life to come. That, that the bearing we set here and now carries with it a momentum that penetrates beyond this mortal life. That trajectory, that path is described here as, as the way of those who lived with a, a foolish confidence, who were followed by yet more people who approve of their boasts. And the nightmarish, merciless picture is further painted as kind of a train of people described as sheep with death as their shepherd, who follow along to their own destruction to a place called Sheol, or what is called in the New Testament, hell. We've gotten a solid hint about the nature of this place. I referred to it earlier. In some way, it is a home forever, but also a place where man and his pomp cannot remain. It's a place of degradation, of dehumanization. It's further described in verse 14 as the place where our form is consumed, so that in some sense we will have no place to dwell, even as we must dwell there. It, it, it is in some sense a place where one is unmade and completely dispossessed. It's, he, he is describing an existence in which all the benefits of life and God, which everyone enjoys in this life to one degree or another, whether we believe in him or not, are utterly stripped away. Because you have now finally realized what you have pursued in this life, that you are separated from God, in whose image you were made, in whom there is life. Now, um, it's a curious feature of the days in which we live that despite the fact 
that hell is frequently referred to in Scripture, most often and most vividly by Jesus himself, uh, it's become something that we just don't discuss in polite company. And, and I can tell you as a preacher, I, I certainly get that. I, 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 don't, I don't like talking about this. I, I enjoy being liked. I don't especially want to make people feel bad or uncomfortable, okay? But I think we're back to that first question of will we hear? Will we listen? Will we listen to what God's Word says? Because what God's Word, because the teaching of Scripture is in fact that hell is real, that it exists, and it is every bit as real as cancer and car wrecks and terrorist attacks. And of course, no one takes pleasure in the reality of any of that. But for those of us who have put our faith in the Lord, we will never grasp the greatness and grace of our salvation until we come face to face with that which we have been saved from. Not only that, I think we risk losing a real sense of urgency that the stakes in this life are actually quite high that they have direct implications for the life to come. And I'm afraid to the degree that we shove this doctrine in the closet, we risk becoming numb or cynical or indifferent to truly the heartbreaking, grievous, tragic reality of human lostness. And I suspect what might result is a kind of polite, quiet acceptance of things as the way they are instead of a, of a longing that the lost would be saved, instead of something that would give us some zeal in our prayer, instead of changing our posture that we might plead before the Lord to show mercy to others as He has shown it to me, that we would really love our neighbors enough to, to not just seek, you know, them liking us, but to, sink, to, to seek not just their temporal good, but their eternal good. And again, these are very hard verses to slog through, hard verses to hear, hard verses to preach, uh, but they are given to us, and they are given that we might listen, and that we might get wisdom, and with wisdom, hope, and grace, and life, because as the psalm progresses, you get good news in verse 14, that in fact, that's not the only path, that there's another path. And that death isn't the only shepherd, but there's a better shepherd. There's a better boast. There's a greater confidence to be had in this life than whatever I can gin up in myself. There are those who will see the morning after they pass through the night. They're called the upright, which doesn't refer to some moral quality in them. They didn't get on this path or follow this shepherd or make it through the night because they were good people. They're upright because they simply have not been laid low by death, but have been gripped in this life by something greater than they could ever grab but for themselves. They've been gripped by the grace of God. So you find out in verse 15 how clear, uh, or how, how, this is, how this has come to be. We've identified the predicament we're all in. Our life requires a ransom. No one can pay it. We're all made for a relationship with the Lord, but we have utterly broken that relationship to our ruin, and now we require reconciliation with Him, except we can't come up 
with the needed tool, the ransom, to make that right. That's the conundrum. That's the vexing, puzzling tragedy of our situation. And it seems for all the world that the psalmist has finally come to the end of the riddle and it can't be solved. And left to us, it certainly never would be. But the good news is it's not left to us. The riddle, in fact, is solved not by us, but by God. Not by us grinding it out to make a life for ourselves, which only robs us of life, which only dehumanizes us and degrades us, but riddle is solved in God giving us what we could never hope to earn on our own, but that which he is glad to give, and that is his grace. Verse 7 gave the devastating assessment of the trouble we're in. Truly, no man can ransom, one, can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. But in verse 15, the agony is addressed when we find out that God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God pays what we owe so that he can secure what certainly would have been lost, us. I can't gain life for myself, but it's his good pleasure to give me fullness of life by grace. He secures my law-breaking, as good as lost life that no amount of effort or earning could have ever saved by doing what? Paying the ransom himself. Shale should have swallowed me up in all my pomp. It should have dispossessed me. It should have undone me. It should have become my forever home. But it, it wasn't that because the Lord has paid the ransom. And I just want to notice, you know, that God's salvation is not a socially distanced kind of salvation, okay? The psalmist says, I'm received by him. That's, that's, it's, the language there doesn't quite get it. It sounds a little too passive. This is really the idea of I have been fully embraced by him face to face. I mean, look how personally he puts it. He will receive me. Back in verse 14, the psalmist delivered that devastating truth that man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. And, and you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I can't say I'm exempt from that kind of pomp. From seeking security apart from the Lord, guilty. Looking for love in all the wrong places, guilty. Looking for life apart from Him, guilty. You know, if you've, if you've managed to, to, you know, exempt yourself from that kind of posture in the last 15 minutes, I just want to say congratulations, right? All of us are captive to the pride and pomp of life. It's, it's the dirt of the old Adam that just clings. It is, it is my default mode. When, when my system gets rebooted, it very often goes right there. And in fact, this man in his pomp becomes a refrain in the song. It's repeated again at the end. I kind of wish it weren't because I don't want to hear it again, except at the end there's this little twist. Instead of just repeating that man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beast that perish. The song ends like this. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. What keeps us, in other words, from becoming like a beast that perishes is understanding. It's wisdom. Well, what is the wisdom? It's understanding that we were made for relationship with God, that we violated that relationship in our sin, that a ransom is required, that we can't pay it, but that he is glad to. He does and he will. It's his good pleasure to do so, but it comes with understanding. It comes with 
faith. It comes from turning from the dehumanizing, degrading trust to the God who alone delivers grace and embraces us and receives us. It comes when we cease with the madness of the life lived in honor of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And comes when we end with the exhaustion of trying to pay our own way and place our faith in the Lord who is glad to pay for us. So this is the good news. The riddle has been solved. The, the hope that we've been pressing, that the psalmist has been pressing into has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, who said in Matthew 20 that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't have to do that. He could have stayed away from us in all of our poverty, reveling in his power and glory, boasting in the abundance of his riches. Or he could have come to make demands of us. He could have asked us to pay more than we could ever possibly afford. He could have driven us to despair and to a deserved death. But that's not how he came. He came to serve and to give himself as a ransom so that we would be received by him, embraced by him, taken to him, and snatched from Sheol. In Christ, God has provided the ransom we could never pay. He loved us so much that he would rather die than lose us. You see, the gospel shows us that no man is so rich in this life as to be able to redeem themselves, and it also shows us that no one is so poor as to be exempt from the riches on offer in him. The gospel shows us we're poorer than any of us ever wanted to admit, but in him we become far richer than our despair would ever allow us to dream. So that, that question asked from the start, why should I fear, has now been answered. You shouldn't. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, life can't be stolen away, and it can never be more solidly secured. Be not afraid. Be not afraid of the world's riches because there are greater riches in the, in the Lord's ransom. Be not afraid of the world's glory because there's greater glory in God's grace. Be not afraid of the pandemics and the politics and the riots and the troubles because God has taken upon himself all the troubles that should have fallen upon us that we might get life because the ransom has been paid because of Jesus the nightmare of dissolution is over and we've received a redemption which brings life and wholeness in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for telling us the truth. Lord, would you give us this grace of listening, of hearing from you, of attending to your word, of letting it interpret us, of letting it reorder us, Lord, there's no small shortage in my own life and in the world of, you know, our own opinions. But we pray that you would give us the grace of sitting and listening and being here and allowing you to speak truth, to do the diagnosis and to provide the cure. Lord, we pray that as we come to this table, we would do so um, understanding very clearly that this is not a table in which we've got to make a payment, but it's a table in which we rejoice that payment has been made fully and forever in your, in your son, Jesus Christ, so that we have come into possession of life that penetrates beyond this life. We have been snatched away from hell 
we have been secured in you. And Lord, would you feed us to the end that it wouldn't just personally benefit us, but that your body would be built up, that we would love one another. Lord, that uh, the church would be a great light in this city. And Lord, that we might pursue our unbelieving friends. Lord, to the end that they would come to know you, that, that the madness of trying to live life on, its own, on, on our own terms would be put to an end so that something better could be received in you. Lord, we're asking for a lot, but we're trusting that you give all of it and much more in Jesus. So be with us as we come to this table. It's in his name we pray. Amen.